the more of those activities we can start to connect the dots on, the better off that we're going to be. I just think a lot of these things, like especially like some of these movement skill standpoints, these kids just don't spend enough time in those positions. So by adding in the isometrics and then doing the dynamic effort work with it, we really start to see kids connect the dots on how to produce force in those vectors. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Right at the start of this episode with Connor Shep, I mentioned that he wrote an article that featured in the top 10 most read articles on Sportsmith in 2023. So that was a good enough reason to get Connor on and dive into that topic, which is isometrics. And he's actually got another article come in on hamstring injury rehab, which is what we dive in. Also, we combine the two. So we start off with isometrics. Why does isometrics bring this following of people that don't get it, don't really believe in it? And then on the flip side, why does Connor believe in it? What work has Connor done on using isometrics in his setting that has worked and really made him an advocate for this type of training? In the second half of the episode, we dive into hamstring rehab, which is an article that he's going to publish in a couple of weeks on Sportsmith. So he takes us through the day-by-day, week-by-week breakdown of his rehab process from a hamstring injury. So if you're interested in isometrics and hamstring injuries, and both, or both, this episode will definitely be for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Rock Daisy. Rock Daisy's athlete management system provides a powerful competitive advantage to elite sports leagues around the world. If you're looking for a solution that enables you to centralize, analyze, and visualize your data, check out rockdaisy.com and sign up for a free trial. Also sponsoring this podcast is Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for that annual Vald.com event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but they also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald. But if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. So without further ado, over to the episode with Connor. Connor Shep, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Rob, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's good to finally uh, catch up virtually. Wrote a an article for Sportsmith, I think, last year, which was in the top 10 most read articles on, on ISOs. So um, we'll dive into some of that stuff. And then another one coming down the line on hamstrings. So we'll dive into some of that stuff. But before we do, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, an intro to you, what you've been doing, what you're now, what you've been doing in the past? Yeah. So um, from America, uh, been working in performance uh, at the collegiate professional level now for about nine years. Uh, bounced around a little bit between American football and soccer. Uh, currently in my role, I'm at Liberty University. I'm the director of applied performance, and then I also oversee 
uh, all performance for uh, men's soccer, and then all return to player initiatives uh, for all of our teams here. So was that Ryan's role before? No, so Ryan was uh, okay. specifically with football. Um, he was the okay. assistant, and then he oversaw all of those aspects of performance for just football as to where I just oversee everything else with the rest of our sports, our soccers, basketballs, baseballs, things like that. It's interesting because I've been doing this so long. I'm having people in the same role or the, the same role on the podcast, but it's the next person or the next person's next person. So it's, uh, yeah, I've had a couple of them, a couple of them recently. Oh, it's crazy, man. I, honestly, yeah. I, I don't know. You obviously know how long you've been doing it, but man, I feel like I've been listening to the podcast since I was back in like undergrad, which is insane to think about now. It's over 10 years. Oh, it's yeah, just over 10 years, which is, which is crazy. But like I mentioned, you'd written a, um, a storming article for Sportsmith on isometrics. And I don't know if you looked at the list of 10 most popular or most read articles on, on Sportsmith last year, but I think probably four out of the 10, maybe three out of the 10 were isometric related. And I think the majority of the others were speed related. Then there's a few anomalies in there as well. But so ISOs and speed are clearly what people care about. So let's have a little chat around them. And I was just saying, I was just saying beforehand, isometrics seem to get thrown in because people like to have a, have a polarized opinion and still people bring up ISOs of maybe in the, and we'll come into this later on, that the Nordic debate, oh, these are like the fad like Nordics are and whatever. So just to get your, your opinion, isometrics, why do you, why do you believe in them? And then we'll get into where you program and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I just, you know, I, I came into this, um, you know, I've always used isometrics a fair amount in my programming, a little bit more than most coaches. But I think, like, once I specifically started working with soccer, I, I started delving into it a little bit more. Obviously, like, a lot of the things coming out of the performance world are, um, you know, overseas. You start to see a little bit more of that stuff pop up. Obviously, Alex Matera's work started to really drive some of that, like, conversations behind it, some of the popularity of it. Um and for me, I just always broke it down to like three kind of big rocks of why I use isometrics. One is like the the motor learning aspect of the education, right? Like the more time we spend in the position, the more motor learning is going to take place, right? Like that's just kind of, it goes back to strength conditioning 101 of just like when we're talking about specificity and joint angles and regimes of muscular work and force production, like we can really isolate some of those things. Um, and there's just so much motor learning that goes on, especially with like underdeveloped athletes. I think where we get lost in some of these like training models is we think that we're working with advanced athletes, but in reality, like the training age is really for most of these kids pretty so low. Um, and the ability to just put them into a, a very specific position and spend a lot of time there. Um, I think just from motor learning aspect, uh, motor control, I mean, I just think there's so much benefits that come from that. Um, not just in the training standpoint, but especially from the return to play standpoint, which I know we're going to do a little bit later on. Um, and then next, just being like kind of already hit up on just the ability to isolate certain qualities, right? So like the thing that I love about isometrics is, you know, they really can fit into any part of your programming throughout the year, right? Just because there's just so many different things that we can manipulate to target specific qualities, right? So if you say if you run like a little bit more of like a, so for example, a linear based model where, we work on extensive qualities and then a little bit more force uh, strength driven qualities and then it's more dynamic ever qualities, but we can manipulate the isometrics to marry those stimuluses, right? Like we can, you know, do extensive isometrics at a lower intensity um, to start to build tissue capacity, some metabolic adaptations, things like that. 
we want to start to get into some more um, strength-driven qualities. We start to do some more overcoming, some more high-intensity, three to five second grinding isometrics, right? And then if we're working more dynamic, then we can start to get into, you know, some of the more rate dependent stuff of like, you know, one to two second overcoming isometrics or even switches, right? Switches, bounds, like whatever it is. Um, we can really start to hone in on like specific qualities that we want to address. And I just think it just makes it such like an easy tool to apply across like the gambit of your whole uh, program and philosophy. And then lastly, I just think that like, there's so much potentiation from it and not potentiation maybe in the classical sense of like PAP, which is more so in the sense of like we get such a, a high stimulus at a relatively low cost, right? And I think like, you know, the reason we've started to see that come up even more and more is the reality is like we work in a field where we like it rarely is the strength coach the one calling the shots across everything, right? We have to answer people, right? And like we have to be able to find a way to develop athletes, get a huge stimulus without interfering with the sport, right? Like we always want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And so our ability to like get these athletes in good positions, get them under high force outputs without taking away from what we're trying to do on the field, man, I've just found such a, uh, such a benefit from that, especially in your sports, like your field sports, like, you know, your soccer's, your, you know, your rugby's, uh, your lacrosse's, your field hockey's where, they have such a high speed distance demand um, it's such an external loading demand that, you know, trying to fill those buckets and still trying to make time for development. Um, just think is there's so much value in it. You can just from my experience working in football and, and playing, I can see why that would be such a, a pull for a sports coach. When, if you sold that to them, the way you've just, Describe there how much that would resonate and kind of give me confidence that you're not going to kill the players because that, as you know, when you look to kind of European football, English football now, that's always a a concern with the amount of games and the amount of, like you say, high intensity um, running demands. Asymmetrics just seems to, based on that description, fit into that model as well. Yeah, so. Like I said before, this gets isometrics for whatever reason might just be the people that pop them up on my on my Twitter feed. But why do you think there's still a section of the industry who think that this interest will just come and go? Doesn't have any foundations, you know, all the negative stuff that we see from pretty much anything that comes onto the scene. Right. So I you know, I've been working in I guess performance for just a little under a decade now and like there was a time in my career, Rob, where like, you know, you'd see the, like, especially when you're younger, you'd see the old heads start to complain of like, oh, like we've been doing this since the sixties and like, oh, we're doing this, yada, yada, yada. And it was like, all right, like we get it, move on. Um, now I'm starting to get to the point where we do start to see these things kind of cycle back through. Right. Like I think like the easy, easy examples, like, um, you know, uh, agilities, right. Like 20 years ago, it was all about change of direction and closed drills and then there was this, you know, phenomenon of like, oh, it's all about open, you know, OODA loop and perception and reaction. And then we start to see like some of Damien Harper's work and it's like, oh no, we got to go back to some of the D-cell stuff, right? And like, at no point were any of those people wrong. It's just more sort of the idea that it's all right, right? Like everything has a place in time, I guess for me, where it comes down to, and the thing that I love about isometrics is like, it's just a method and as, as long as it, uh, you know, aligns with your principles, there's really no, there isn't a wrong way of doing it, right? Like, 
I think that, you know, if you don't feel like logistically you can do it, if you don't feel like it doesn't fit within your system, that's fine, right? Like you can say the same thing about Olympic derivatives, right? You know, like they're not inherently wrong. They just may not fit within what you do, right? But that doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place for it. And I think for a majority of sports, because of the bandwidth of what we're able to do from an isometric standpoint, I really think that they are a great tool um, for anyone in performance, just because of what we've already talked about before and the vast amount of benefits from it. Why people are starting to, you know, shy away from it. I do think it's a little bit of just, you know, there has been a little bit of a, I don't want to say overcorrection, but there's certainly been a a drastic rise in popularity. Um, And some of that's just not going to align with what people believe. I think people naturally are just going to have a lot of preconceived notions. And when things don't support their narrative, they're naturally going to want to shy away from it and pick, you know, pick out like why this wouldn't work and why it doesn't fit within their system as opposed to saying, Hey, you know, I understand why this works. It just doesn't, you know, operate within what I'm trying to do. So you mentioned logistically doesn't work or may not work for people. What challenges did you face when trying to implement isometrics logistically and how did you get over those issues? Mm. Um, well, one, I, you know, it's, so it's, it's hard for me to speak. If anybody knows like the situation that I operate out of, I'm extremely fortunate. Um, I work in one of the nicest facilities in the country. Um, so super, super fortunate from like uh, from that standpoint. I'd say the biggest challenge that I probably face is from trying to introduce some of these things are the time aspect of it, right? Like when we start to add in, especially some of these isometrics, um, we're just adding more work to the time that we already don't have, right? So, you know, if anybody's working in sport, you understand that, especially in collegiate athletics, there's times of the years where you have eight hours, four of that goes to the sport, four of that goes to us. And then there's time where we go into 20 hours. But even from that standpoint, I'm not always getting the one that gets to pick the time of, hey, we're going to have 30, 40, 60 minutes here. Um, there's days where I, you know, I get the, hey, you got 20 minutes and they got to be done in practice, right? And so, like, obviously, like, that's going to make things complicated. I would say from a logistics standpoint, you know, one, identifying like, okay, like what are the big rocks that I want to hit on, right? And then what is the quickest and easiest way that I can target those big rocks? So like for me, going back to some Alex's stuff, um, hip, knee, and ankle, okay? How can we make the time and preset the room to try to get the athletes in and out as fast as we can and still get a great stimulus out of it? Um, I have a ton of help from... I have an unbelievable group of interns here that can help set those things up and can help coach our athletes through those things. But I think ultimately, like once I've been doing it long enough, probably the best thing that's come from it is just the fact that I have an older group now that has been around and doing it long enough that I pretty much just have to open the room and they kind of take care of it themselves. And, you know, it's one of those things, like especially when we have younger athletes coming in here, like, you know, I'm getting some academy based kids that are, 17, 18 years old and leaving home for the first time that have never stepped foot in a weight room. Um, I have a group of guys that I can lean on pretty well to kind of carry that uh, torch for me and kind of show them away um, and really just kind of run the room themselves. And I just kind of get to sit back and watch and, you know, step in when needed. Nice. Sounds like a good place to be. <clears throat> Need to see the pictures of the weight room, by the way. I've seen, the, I've, seen the, I've seen the videos from the article, but um, definitely need some pictures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so like you mentioned in the in the article, and this is, I don't know if this has changed since then, but acceleration day, max speed day, more directional day. Where do ISOs fit into those three buckets? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, it depends about the time of the year. It depends on the qualities that we're trying to train. Um, so if we are in the off season, that's generally the way that I'll try to delineate things, right? So if I'll get, we'll do all of our dynamic workout on the field or our speed work or, you know, movement prep um, before training, right? So I, I identify like, okay, like what are the big rocks and the qualities that I want to work on that day, right? So an acceleration day, a max velocity or a top end speed day, upright running, whatever you want to call it. And then a multi-directional base day, right? And I'll just spend generally anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes of movement prep, movement prep before training. And then my goal is, okay, like how can I marry those stimuluses, what we did out there on the field to what we're doing in the weight room? So inherently, if we're working on acceleration, we'll start to look at some of the qualities of, okay, we're going to be in deeper joint ankles, right? Um, it's going to be very uh, hip-driven. Right. It's going to be much more influenced by strength. So we'll probably be working on some more grinding isometrics and things like that. Uh, deeper flexion at the knee, deeper flexion at the ankle. Um, and that will be our movement prep before we head into the rest of our more like traditional strength training. Right. Or it'll be worked in as a superset, um, depending upon the time of the year. The only real caveat to that is if we're doing like extensive isometrics, we'll always do those things at the end. Um, but anything outside of that, we'll do that at the beginning of the lift as soon as they come in. The max velocity days are our upright days. We'll do um, much shallower angles. So, um, you know, 10 degree knee bend, uh, plantar flex work, um, things of that nature, uh, more dynamic efforts. So we may be, you know, shorten the duration of the isometrics, a little bit more dynamic efforts of, you know, two second max efforts as opposed to, you know, grinding strength at 75 to 90% maximum voluntary contraction. Um, and then multi-directional day, we're just going to try to, again, mimic the, the same movement patterns that we're doing out of the field. So we'll do some sort of lateral um, isometric where we're pushing up against a wall, pairing now with some sort of dynamic effort work in here, like a lateral jump or a lateral throw. Um, and just trying to target a little bit more of that uh, frontal plane of movement and matching it up with what we're trying to do out of the field. Sorry, I'm furiously writing here. So the 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 front the frontal plane stuff that you mentioned there, I mean, for the more sagittal plane stuff, working with force plates, you can get an idea, you can get the data. Is that something that you do? So testing and training, training and testing uh, to understand to understand the effort that you're. Stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To understand. Yeah. Sorry, to understand the the <laughs> the percentage of uh, maximal voluntary contraction are using the force plates is uh, is what I was going to ask. Yeah, so good question. So. I'll tell you this. The first year that we started to do that, um, it just became a lot. Um, it really just, um, just with all the testing, with all the athletes, the time constraints that we had, getting the force plates out. Um, we tried it, had some success with it. I think it's a great model if you have the time, the resources to do it. What it came down to is we just didn't have that anymore. So we just moved to a little bit more of an RPE-based model, 10 being as hard as you can, one being absolutely nothing right just generally like programming like six to seven to eight to nine out of ten right um and most of our guys have a pretty good representation of that like they have a good understanding now that we've known for a while of like what that means and what that looks like um where we will start to get a little bit more of that actual measuring is if we start to work on some of these things in the re return to play process and i'm getting athletes one-on-one -on -one where we need to hone in a little bit more on exactly um what we're trying to target, right? Like our, our, uh, our bullseye is a lot more narrow. Once we get into some of those return to play settings and the base is a little bit lower than it would be in a little bit more of a general training standpoint. 
We'll get into the return to play thing in a minute. But multi-directional day, what do ISOs look like there and how does it compare to the Axel and the, the max velocity? Um, it'll be a little bit, little bit more... Um... A lot deeper angles, similar to the acceleration-based day, but it's just really going to be a lot more frontal plane driven. So we'll do, you know, we'll set them up on a belt against a pole, um, driving out against that for grinding isometrics. Uh, we'll do a dynamic effort as well. Uh, we will do just up against a wall. We'll set their foot against an edge where we're getting them in some sort of a pronation. And we can actually get them wedged up against the wall and driving into that. And generally, we're just using that. Um, we're pairing that in some sort of tri-set. So on those days specifically, we'll do um, like a grinding isometric where they're driving into a wall for three to five seconds, 75 to 90% maximum body contraction, um, pairing that with a lateral jump or a lateral hop, and then some sort of rotational med ball throw. Um, and just kind of a way to, again, like potentiate some of those things and marry up some of those qualities. So is that is that tricep purely from a time and a potentiation perspective, or is there other reasons why you'd do that? I mean, honestly, probably the biggest part of it is just the motor learning aspect of it, right? Like, I think, like, the more of those activities we can start to, you know, connect the dots on, the better off that we're going to be. I just think a lot of these things, like, especially, like, some of these movement skill standpoints, these kids just don't spend enough time in those positions. So by adding in the isometrics and then doing the dynamic effort work with it, um, we really start to see kids connect the dots on how to produce force in those vectors. Um, from a closed standpoint, which would be like the isometric, to more of a dynamic standpoint, would be like a resisted acceleration or just an unresisted or resisted shuffle or an unresisted shuffle. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Connor. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around hamstring injuries and how some of that information from part one on isometrics feeds its way into Connor's thinking in terms of hamstring injury rehab. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Connor. So moving on to that return to play, I think traditionally the ISOs would be at the start and then they would get phased out for more concentric and eccentric work. That's clearly not what you do. Um, would you mind just taking us through kind of the, the levels, maybe a, a short-term rehab example and a long-term rehab example, if that if you're comfortable doing that, um, or just maybe an overview of of, of it all? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So we'll just start out with the short-term aspect. Um, so immediately post-op injury, um, if we're talking, obviously, all injuries are going to be very different. Um, but let's just say, for an example, a soft tissue lower body injury, right? Uh, that gives us a great opportunity to start to address some neural inhibitions, right? All injuries are brain injuries and start to restore some of those pathways and reduce some of those inhibitions that come from that injury. Um, we'll go right into extensive isometrics. Um, either, you know, 
if it happens early enough in the morning, we'll start the day of, and then we'll just start gradually increasing it from there. Um, and we'll just work off a pain threshold of generally three to four um, out of 10. And we'll just kind of continue to load that as we go. Um, in the short term aspects, we'll generally get back to the more general strength training pretty early on, just because the layoff's not going to be very long. We feel like they can handle it. Um, and we'll still, you know, supplement some isometric stuff. Uh, but I want to get them just kind of moving through those dynamic contractions as soon as I can, because that's generally what we see go first. Uh, it's just that ability to go from obviously the eccentric, isometric to concentric contraction. So we'll get back to the general strength training stuff with them pretty quickly. In the long-term rehab scenarios, um, it's going to be a lot more of a linear approach than most of my training will be, right? So like most of my training is pretty undulated in the sense of like, you know, I break everything up into three qualities, capacity, strength, and speed. Um, everything else kind of falls under there. And you're going to see that pretty present in all my training. But long-term rehab standpoint, when we have, you know, an extended period of time off, we don't have to compete with sporting volume. It's going to be a very linear progression, right? So, like, we can get into, like, the phase-based model stuff later. But in the early phases, very extensive. And then just gradually increasing the intensity and decreasing the volume from there, right? So, we're going from anywhere from 20 to 60 seconds extensive isometrics. Uh, starting to get into some more loaded, yielding isometrics from there as we get a little bit deeper, which will then start to blend into some overcoming isometrics. Uh, a little bit more grinding strength-driven. As well as some, uh, depending upon what we're after, some yielding, grinding strength isometrics. And then as we start getting some of those later phases, and when you start to bridge the gap between, you know, using those newfound face force capabilities and actually applying it to dynamic movement, we'll start to get into a little bit more of the dynamic effort isos, the switches, the catches, things of that nature, kind of simultaneously as we start to work them back out into the field. And that's a very long progression done over, you know, depending upon obviously level of an injury, if it's an ACL, anywhere from, you know, six to nine months, depending upon the case, right? So it's, it's very um, incrementally uh, increased just over time. Just clear something up for us around the overcoming and yielding, because people here overcoming, yielding, pushing, holding, grinding, just clear that up for us. Real quick. Yeah. So just the, uh, to me and like my model, um, overcoming would be any sort of pushing isometric, right? So we're moving up against a immovable object. Uh, yielding would be um, where we are holding something in a desired position. Um, for me, I will gravitate towards the overcoming isometrics first because I think it is a little bit less taxing on the body um, just from a structural standpoint, especially earlier on in that process. And we can much easier dictate their effort of how much they are pushing into that object, right? And just working off a pain scale from there. Once I feel like they're ready for it, then we'll gradually get into the yielding or the holding isometrics where we start to get a little bit more of an eccentric contraction. And we'll start to address a little bit more of the, uh, the structural adaptations that we're after and starting to, you know, whether it's tendon or muscle or whatever it is, start to address some of those things a little bit more. So did you do any testing at all to get an idea of where these guys are at? And if so, what positions are you putting them in to then program not only that specific exercise, but other ones off the back of it? So it depends very much so on the injury um, and kind of what we're after. I would say for the most part, if we're just saying it's like a, an easy example, again, what I've written about in the article in the past with ACL, we'll just look at ankle, knee, and hip, 
Um, we'll do a, we'll start at the ankle. Right now we'll do a, a plantar flex standing isometric, uh, just a traditional um, plantar flex isometric up into the rack with uh, flexion at the hip, right? Just, you know, very similar to what Alex does. Uh, from there, we'll go to the knee or we'll do the same thing. We'll do a, a standing knee um, bent. Uh, so roughly about 10 to somewhere probably 20 degrees bent. And then once we get to the hip, we will go a, um, a 10 degree uh, bend at the hip and the knee um, to mimic a little bit more of upright running. And then to mimic a little bit more acceleration will be much deeper, like a 90 degree hip in the knee, right? And the only one that we've just recently added is a seated plantar flexion test, um, especially if we're working back from any lower limb injuries. So I'm talking, when I say lower limb, I mean below the knee. Um, we'll, uh, we'll lock them down with a, uh, a ratchet strap and get a plantar flexion number from that. So do you do this to get a baseline with healthy athletes? Um, depends on the sport and high injury risk needs. So working in soccer, we'll do that with uh, pretty much all of our soccer athletes in comparison to, let's say, our volleyball team. We'll really just kind of focus on the ankle. Um, and some of that's uh, importance of the sport and what the demands that they need. Uh, other than that is just logistics. And, you know, the reality is that there is a hierarchy of teams here. Um, and what resources are we able to allocate to those teams? Cool. Right, let's move on to the next um, controversial topic in, in hamstrings. And there was there was a, an article went out on, on a particular website um, yesterday, I think, caused a bit of controversy. And it, and it rears its ugly head again, the whole Nordic debate. Not only are we now saying that they don't reduce injuries, but we're now saying, some people are now saying, increase injuries, Connor. So what's your, what's your thoughts? Yeah, so, you know, I talked about a little bit before, right? But there's always this thing of just, you know, everything kind of starts to come in cycles. Um, when I was getting into the field, Nordics were, there really wasn't a whole lot out there on it, at least in the American side. Um, and then for about a five-year period there, I think there were a little bit of everything. Um, you know, there was the one article, I think, it, I forget the number it said, but it, it drastically reduced uh, hamstring injuries from sprinting um, considerably, right? And then we're starting to come back now, and we're starting to see some people say that, you know, Oh, not only are they not effective, but they're counter-effective. Um, I haven't read the article. I haven't seen the research. I'm sure, obviously, Fergus is a genius and, you know, very thankful for everything that he's put out in the field. But, you know, it's it's probably been carried a little bit of a, a too far either way. So, I guess, in my mind, um, and specifically the Nordics, right, like, let's just look at it from the standpoint of, like, you know, we get a lot of high eccentric load that we wouldn't necessarily get during other kind of more traditional strength training movements, right? And like, you know, if we look at upright sprinting, when a lot of these injuries are occurring, there's a ton of eccentric forces at uh, late swing or early stance that um, a lot of us have, I think, thought for a long time are part of the culprit um, of what's happening. Now, I do think there is some truth to that, right? Like there certainly is like an eccentric spike in, you know, hamstring tension during upright sprinting. Um where I think we start to lose out a little bit on the argument is the fact that the rate is so drastically higher, right? So if we start to look at like the structure of the hamstring and we start talking about like pination angles, right? So like pination angles, I'm talking about the way that the muscle lays um, across itself, right? So if I'm looking at a hamstring, it's very linear, 
right? It's straight up and down versus let's say like your gas rock, that's going to be much more um, angled out at about a 45 degree angle down, right? Well, what, what it tells me about that long linear uh, pination angle is that it's, it's really, it is built for high forces, right? And I think some people have kind of taken that narrative and ran with it and said, oh, hey, like the hamstrings are built for high amounts of force. We have these Nordics here that give us this huge eccentric overload. Like, let's do it. Like it works, right? And to be honest, it fits our narrative of what we do in the weight room. So I think that's part of the issue itself. But in more reality, I think what we've started to find is like, while yes, they are built for high high force, more, impor- more importantly, they're built for high speed, right? Which is why I think you're starting to see some of these people gravitate towards more of a running-based model, um, or at least leaning into that a little bit more so than some of the isolated rehab stuff. Now, in terms of the Nordics, how effective are they? Are they not effective? I would say that they're probably as effective as any other general strength and quality, right? If you give me two athletes and all variables are accounted for the same, the stronger athlete is generally going to be a little bit more resistant to injury. Now, where we start getting debates is, okay, how much of that, right? How much more resistant are they? Depending upon the scenario, I don't know. Some athletes a little bit more, some athletes a little bit less. I don't think we'll ever actually have a real answer. Um, are they as you know specific as helping um, as we maybe thought in the past? I would say probably not, um, but we'll see. I think there's still probably a little bit more to come out on that. Do you include them in your programs? Yes, I do, um, especially during early times in the season where we have a lower amount of running volume. So I'll just say, you know, we just started up back this week um, and we'll work in, you know, every Friday heading out for um, heading into the weekend. We'll hit a pretty decent high volume of the uh, uh, Nordics just because I think that we do know that um, longer pination angles and longer structures is a key or is a KPI for decreasing the likelihood of hamstring injuries. And we know that it takes roughly somewhere between 14 and 17 days to start to see some of those eccentric adaptations uh, occur. So for the first two weeks, when I know our running volume is going to be really low, I'll hammer them pretty hard. And then from there, if I do use them at all, it'll be at a very maintenance level base. And then we'll gradually move on just because I know that they're getting so much eccentric load on the hamstrings from sprinting itself. Um, now from a return to play standpoint, uh, it really be the same thing. We'll gradually progress to those, um, into the later stages, but once they start to get into more, so like high speed running, we'll start to gravitate away from them and it'll just be more of like a maintenance quality. So you mentioned the sprint based model for reducing hamstring injuries. What does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So for me, um, I think feel that, free to get a drink, Connor, as well if you need a drink. No, 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 you're good. Great. <laughs> um, from a sprint-based model, reducing uh, hamstring injuries, right? So I've broken it down into when I'm working with a, an athlete with a hamstring, I break it down into isolated rehab and a sprint-based model, right? Uh, the isolated rehab is important, but it's completely ancillary in nature, meaning it just completely supports what I'm trying to do on the field. So let's just say that I have an athlete coming off a hamstring injury. Um, the first thing that we're going to do, uh, we're going to start to normalize gate one. And then two, we're going to start to slowly work, work back into some drilling patterns, right? And I've broken this down. I took this from uh, Derek Hansen out of Canada, uh, gear one, gear two, and gear three. And I'll just use really basic sprint drills to start to um, mimic some of those patterns and kind of start to work in some general work capacity and start to identify like, what are they capable of? 
So gear one being, um, if we're thinking about like A series type drills, water, marches, skips, high knees, dribbles, things of that nature, working below the ankle, right? Because that's going to tell me, okay, how much flexion do they have access to right now without exacerbating symptoms, right? Once I feel like they have enough uh, access to more range of motion, we'll slowly work up to the calf and then slowly work up to the knee, which will inherently increase our intensity. And we'll start out somewhere between four to 12 reps of 10 to 15 yards. Um, and then from there, once I feel like they're at a good standpoint from that, they can handle that. We'll slowly start to work into a sprint brace progression. Um, we'll start to work there when, if I feel like the athlete can handle 65% of their speed at or below four out of 10 on the pain scale. If I feel like they're there, we'll start to work out at probably about 80 yards total volume. And then for me, I'll track pain and intensity on every single rep. So let's just say day one, we did one set of eight, eight, uh, 10 yard sprints starting out at roughly 65%. I will ask them to increase their intensity as they feel comfortable, tracking the pain on every single rep, and then uh, gradually increase or tracking the intensity on every single rep as well. And then we'll just gradually start to increase our volume from there. And the intensity will inherently start to increase as they get more comfortable with it, right? So I'll identify a pinpoint of like, okay, like what are the high speed demands of this athlete that I need to prepare them for? An example is I know on my team, um, our forwards need to be able to run about 400 yards of high speed distance in our match day minus three plus practices, right? So our, our toughest training sessions. So I'll, I'll pinpoint that number and say, okay, how can I work them up to 400 yards of high speed distance um, gradually over time? So once they get to a point where they're running, you know, um, 10 yards at tolerable pace, 90%, will gradually start to increase that distance out, thus increasing the intensity. Uh, so once we feel like they're at a good standpoint from there, uh, the volume will start to increase, the intensity will start to increase, we'll start to increase the complexity, we'll start to introduce uh, resisted running, uh, curved running, change of direction work, things like that, to start to prep the, the hamstring for different angles. And really it's just, again, just kind of working that gradual like linear increase up, like, okay, once we get to that volume standpoint, is our intensity high enough? And then have we prepared them for the multi-directional demands of their sport? One thing you mentioned in the article, and this is something that we've, we've featured on Sportsman a couple of times, uh, Chris Brammer did a, did a Q&A on, um, on the lumbo pelvic control. How do you work that in? What do exercises look like? When does it appear? When does it disappear? How do you scale it, regress it? Yeah. So I would say that's probably one of the, like, you know, one of the more evident things that we've started to see in the last couple of years come out of like in terms of some of these ham hamstring injuries, um, just the athlete's ability to control um, movement starting at the pelvis and working out, right? Like if there's one thing I teach all my athletes from day one, it's everything starts at the pelvis and works out, right? So I think especially in these isolated rehab cases where I have time with these athletes one-on-one, -on -one, um, and this will probably be the, hopefully the only time I have them one-on-one -on -one for the rest of their career. I'm going to take this time to start to address some of those more minute details, especially in lumbo pelvic control. And that's something that we can start from day one, right? So whether that's just, you know, laying them on the ground, getting them to an anterior posterior tilt, getting them back into their feet in more of a closed setting of, okay, anterior posterior tilt from there, a lateral hip hike, right? Just trying to create this kind of a the way that we describe it as like a 3D pelvis, right? My ability to control movement for my pelvis, um, 
in all planes of motion, right? Then we'll start to, you know, increase the complexity of it with crawls and certain core drills, you know, uh, forward, backward, lateral crawling, uh, dead bug variations, just very simple things like that. And then as we start to bleed into more of the drilling, that'll be a focal point for us always, right? Can we maintain a stack column, pelvis in a slight posterior tilt, rib cage depressed, uh, shoulder stacked over rib cage, head neutral. Um, just the ability to move through that uh, very, very competently is a major KPI for me. We'll also start to do some some overhead drilling where we'll get a PVC pipe over their head and force them to be in positions where it's disadvantageous for them, um, but they still have to maintain that neutral pelvis. Um, and then just gradually increasing the intensity from there until we feel like they're at a standpoint where they can do it safely at higher speeds. Is there anything other than the PVC pipe that you use as a drill for this particular aim? Mm. I would say um, one thing that I would say that I've had a ton of success with working back with some of these athletes that have some of this, you know, um, if, you, if you ever read, read like literature, it's called like Trendelenburg sign of like just the inability to laterally flex through the hip. Um, just lateral walking with the hips and just getting the obliques to fire has been a game changer for me. Uh, so what I'll just have them do is I'll just hands on hips, slight posterior tilt, a walking lateral hike, and then pairing that with a wider stance uh, kettlebell carry, um, where I, I tell them, I cue them that there's a tightrope between their body and their ability to stay off that tightrope and actually use their obliques to pull that hip up and through, which is going to get inherently going to give them more room to create more force on the ground and let them land back under their center of mass as opposed to kind of tight walking that line, what we call crossover gait. Um, that would be the thing for me, especially early on in the rehab process, where I have had astounding um, results with that. Um, is there anything else in this area that you've had really good results with that's maybe not out there as much or is out there as much, but you want to share? To be useful for people to know and take and steal? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Oof, I'm trying to think here. Um, in terms of some of that, you know, no, it, it really just kind of comes back to the big rocks, right? Like I think like, and what are they, what, and what, what are they to you? So it depends upon what, what specifically we talk about. Are we talking about like the sprinting aspect or are we talking about, um, reverse engineering hamstring injuries? Yeah. So if we're talking about reducing hamstring injuries, reducing hamstring injuries, or, or trying to mitigate the risk. Mitigate the hamstring injury. Hamstring um, like the easy example for me is just the idea of like reverse engineering, like the the hamstring injury itself, right? So I think where like a lot of practitioners make a lot of mistakes is they take this shotgun approach to hamstring rehab, um, and you like if you walk into any like training room in the world, right? You're going to see an athlete that has a hurt a hurt hamstring. They're going to be doing eight eight to ten different drills, three to ten reps. Um, and a jogging progression um, that's not super specific to what they're actually trying to get prepared for. Right. And like right or wrong or different. I just think there's a, there's a lot of inherent issues with that. Um, so I think like where I think people make mistakes is not trying to identify some of the inherent risk factors that came along with that injury in and of itself, or some of the like the inherent risk factors that come along with the, the athletes that they're specifically working with. Right. So like, is it a structural issue? Right. So like what kind of structure does the athlete present with? Um, uh, you know, are there certain athletes that are present with a little bit more of an anterior tilt 
okay, how can I start to address that? Right. We know that um, hamstring injuries drastically increase later in matches, right? So is it a fatigue driven issue, right? Is this more of like a metabolic, like their ability to, um, you know, handle higher amounts of capacity, like the tissue level? Um, is it just a general strength issue? And you're working with an athlete that has a very low training age, or is it an athlete that just has no exposures to high speed sprinting? Um, whatever it is, right? There's all these inherent risk factors, I think, that come along with it. I think being able to identify what that specific injury was, like there's no there's no injury that ever comes from one thing, right? Unless it's trauma. We get, you know, skin on skin contact or something like that. Like it's a multitude of things coming together at the same time. But I think we have to be a little bit more of a detective and start to identify like, okay, like what were some of these main culprits driving the car behind this thing? And how can we start to reverse engineer some of those things, right? So an easy example would be like, if the injury is a lot more proximal, right? I know, okay, we can inherently start to address some more hip dominant strategies, right? I need to teach them to move proximal to more distal and vice versa. If it's a more distal hamstring injury, um, I know I need to start to address maybe some more medial hamstrings, right? The semitendinosis, semimembranosis, and some more knee dominant work, right? So just identifying like, whatever those big rocks are um, that we think are the main culprits and then start to reverse engineer ways to mitigate some of those risks. Amazing. Good stuff. Real good stuff. I'm going to round up because I'm conscious that you've got the rest of the day ahead of you. (laughs) And uh, I want to be um, obviously respectful of your time, but we've got the the top 10 article that was on Sportsmiths. I'll link to that. You've got the hammy article that's coming out in a couple of weeks i think but anyone that wants to know more about you get in contact follow what you're doing where's the best place yeah um feel free to reach out anytime um, you can find me on instagram at just at connor shep c-o-n-n-o-r-s-c-h-o-e-p-p um and the same thing on twitter and i'm uh, i'm pretty quick about getting back to people so anybody i can help out just feel free to reach out connor it's been a pleasure Look forward to hoping, hopefully look forward to meeting you uh, later in the year at the, the conference. Yeah. Um, but if not, if not, we'll be in touch. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pace Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Connor for giving up his time to spend 45 minutes with me talking about hamstring injuries and, of course, isometrics. Big thanks to Rock Daisy. Team Builder and Vald for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. I look forward to chatting to you next time.